Hello and welcome back to a new series of the Food Fight podcast. I'm Matt Eastland. And I'm Lakshmi Balthasan. And we're from EIT Food, Europe's leading innovation community working hard to make the food system more healthy, sustainable and trusted. So on today's episode, I have to say it's an especially exciting one. We're talking about the most extreme places to grow food. Yes. Have you ever thought of growing food in the sub-zero temperatures of the Arctic tundra or even in space? No? Well, our guests today have. How and why would you bother? Well, that's what I'm so excited to find out about. So joining us online is Benjamin Vidmar. He's the founder of Polar Permaculture Solutions and is also a chef growing food in Longyearbyen, Norway, the northernmost town in the world. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And speaking with us from the Netherlands via a galaxy far, far away is Angelo Vermeulen. Angelo is the co-founder of SEAD, Space Ecologies Art and Design, and is also a space systems researcher. He's a biologist and an artist with a huge range of appointments in projects alongside the likes of the European Space Agency and NASA. It's really great to have you guys here today. It's going to be a really great episode. So thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Angelo. Hi, thanks for having me as well. Okay, so to kick it off, guys, and before we go into the specifics of what you're both doing, in your own words, why is there a need to grow food in these extreme places? Angelo, maybe I can start with you. I'm focusing on growing food in space, in deep space. And the thing is, if we develop long-term space missions and, and long, deep, deep space missions, if we want to develop space colonization, space settlement is actually a better word for it, we can't just rely on bringing supplies from Earth all the time. So we'll need to start growing food locally on the moon, on Mars, on board of a spaceship. And so that's the main reason this has been a research topic for quite some time, actually. Fantastic. Thank you. And Benjamin, what about you? Well, I would say that we don't need to grow food in the Arctic, but the problem is there's a lot of people here. So then it makes more sense to to have local food, like Angelo said, instead of importing everything. And of course, some things we, we can't grow here. It will have to be imported. But I think we should try to grow what we can locally. And then at least cuts back on some of the imports. Because presently in Longyearbyen, we import 100% of our food from the mainland and from all over the world. And, you know, it's, it, it doesn't compare in quality to what we can produce here, for example, with our leafy greens, with our herbs, with our microgreens. To fly all of that from Netherlands, where it normally comes, compared to what I can produce here, it's not the same quality at all. So that's why it's important, I think, to have some local food here. Okay. And for both of you, is there like a, a climate change impact aspect to what you do? Or is it simply what you guys were saying? Is it about quality on the one side in the Arctic? Is it about just making sure that astronauts have the right food in space? The thing is, if you're able to grow fresh food in space, you will be able to grow food anywhere on Earth, even within a condition of climate change. This is not to, um, how to put it, to make the problem of climate change smaller than it is. It is definitely something we need to avoid at all costs. Mm. But space is such a hostile environment and a difficult environment. If we can overcome those challenges we've learned so much, we can provide a much higher food security on Earth. Great. Love it. And what about you, Benjamin? I think it's a combination of all of those things. I mean, 
we have to look at the big picture. And I think that's a lot of times we just focus on one or two parts of it, but the climate is changing. It's much warmer in the Arctic. They said Longyearbyen is one of the, the fastest warming places in the whole world. Like wow. I'm, I'm not an expert on it, but it's definitely warming up and, you know, things are changing and, you know, fossil fuel is not as cheap as it used to be. So all of the costs are going up and that means the food is much more expensive. Mm. So I think it's a combination of factors, not just one factor. Uh, so Benjamin, you know, we were just chatting before we started recording. You've worked all over the world and now you're based in Longabiran. So, you know, uh, it's a place that spends nine to 10 months of the year below freezing point and, you know, huge variation in sunlight hours between seasons. So first of all, you know, tell us about your relationship with the area and how you came to set up Polar Permaculture Solutions. Basically, I'm for, I grew up in Ohio and the U.S., and I um, was always very passionate about food. And my mother and my grandmother were you know, my first foodie heroes, they were always go to the market, buy fresh food, we would go shop every day. So for me, food was very, very important. And then when I started to work on the ships, because I took a job as a, a head chef on an expedition cruise ship, and it was going to Antarctica from Ushuaia. When I started working on the ship, that's when I started to use frozen fish. And that's when I started to use like, you know, things that you have to last longer. So it was a bit strange for me. And when they sent me to Longyearbyen, when I came here, I worked on the ship and then I started to work at the hotels here. Just living here, it's very challenging for food. It's very mm. expensive to send it here. Like salads and herbs and things like this, you can't put it on a ship. It has to come by plane. And anything you put on a plane is very, very expensive. And you know, it's just so challenging. And I just didn't understand, like I was reading around, like how many people in the Arctic were starting to grow their own food. And I just didn't understand why anyone here didn't consider it. We have a university, we have the Norwegian Polar Institute, we have so much infrastructure, but it's like, they only care about what's here now, you know, what mm. they don't want to change things. But the problem is everything is changing. It, for me, it came down to the, it was very easy. It came down to either I was going to to grow my own food or I was going to leave. That was the point I was at. I was thinking, I can't be here. I'll just go back and just, you know, do this back back in the States. But then I was thinking, yeah, but why not here? Like, why not this place? Tell us a little bit about, you know, Polar Permaculture Solutions. What is it and what is it that you do? Yeah, so the Polar Permaculture Solutions is a company that I've started to basically have as much local food as possible here in Longyearbyen Svalbard. For me, you know, it's very important to consider the permaculture ethics of earth care, people care, and fair share of the, you know, better share of the resources. So, I mean, of course, here it's very challenging to do growing and permaculture like you do in other parts of the world, but there's still ways to do things here. So we, you know, we use a lot of indoor growing. We have an outside greenhouse that we use in the summer and because we have a lot of light. We've just been trying to find, it's been a lot of trial and error and a lot of experimentation to try to grow as much food as possible. We've been getting a lot of support from the government and from different organizations. We were able to work on a feasibility study with the German company, EBF, and they've helped us to complete a feasibility study. So now that we show it's possible to grow and it's, it's like feasible to grow food here. So now we have support from many different people who want to have more local food. And it's not just to grow food, of course, it's very easy just to set up a bunch of hydroponic systems and grow food. But then we also try to take into consideration, like, what's coming out of that? Where does the waste go? OK, you have to import fertilizers and then you dump it into the water that goes into the sea. And then we ship up a lot of resources and then we have to ship back a lot of garbage. So we're trying to look at it on the, a, a bigger picture, whereas 
where does our waste go? Can we can we not have waste? Can we try to find other ways we compost and things like that? So it's not just to grow food, it's trying to make the Longyearbyen more sustainable and more like zero waste and more circular. Yeah, yeah. Love that. Yeah, thanks, Benjamin. I'm wondering if there's some parallels here with Angelo. I mean, Angelo, I know you obviously, you don't live in space, but you're here because your mission is to connect space technology and horticulture to foster innovation in global food production. So, you know, how on earth did you get into this and, and where did your interest in kind of space food start? I've always had this interest in both biology and space exploration, but it took me a while to really connect both. And it actually happened because I got an invitation from the Melissa Research Program at the European Space Agency. They saw my work in which I combine technology, biology, art, engineering into kind of futuristic setups. They saw the work and they invited me basically to think along with them to see if I could kind of come up with ideas to keep on developing their system. And the Melissa system is actually a circular artificial ecosystem that is used to basically recycle all the waste that comes out of a human body, gradually transform it into nutrients for plants, and then the plants provide oxygen and food for the astronauts again. And it's doing that using a series of bioreactors with different microorganisms. So the, the molecules that come out of a human body, which include toilet waste and CO2, everything is basically broken down gradually through the different processes within these uh, microorganisms. This is a, a, a beautiful vision of the future, of course. It's like a circular, a fully circular system, a closed loop system. And so whenever, when they invited me to, uh, to start working with them, I was immediately hooked. And this basically started my career in space exploration because this was not planned. I actually am a biologist. I'm an ecologist and a developmental biologist. I'm also a visual artist, and I started combining both. And I was at this stage where I was combining art and biology when I, was, uh, when I made this connection with the European Space Agency, and then basically the world of space exploration opened up for me, and I started venturing deeper and deeper into it. And logically, my focus was really on connecting biology and space exploration in different kinds of ways. That is incredible. And it, I mean, talking about like, so, okay, it's fantastic to know kind of where you've come from, but space food itself, I mean, isn't it all like a little bit theoretical and futuristic? And, you know, why are you looking at this now? What's the draw? And you say you've been doing it for such a long time. What, why does it keep you going? There is on one hand, the, the, the topic of space food in general, which is not necessarily related to agriculture. I mean, there's a whole history of space food. And I think the archetypes that it brings up in people when you talk about it are mostly tubes with paste and pills. And everybody yeah. still, many people still believe that's what astronauts eat. And then there's the whole issue, there's the whole topic of actually growing food in space. At this point, of course, food has been grown in space. Plants have been grown in space. The first plant that was ever grown in space was back in 1982 by the Russians. So there's a whole history there. But the food that has been growing in space so far on the board of the International Space Station, for example, was mostly for research purposes and only as a little snack, as a little extra to the diet of the astronauts. This was We're not talking about growing calories in space. And this is what really interests me. How can we grow significant amounts of calories and vitamins in space to sustain long-term space exploration? That's a whole different stage where we're, we're not there yet. But research is being done, just like in the Melissa program, for example. So you both touched a little bit about on the challenges. So it'll be really good to like dig a little bit deeper and to paint a picture for our listeners. 
what would you describe as the main challenges of growing in your location? So Benjamin, can we start with you in terms of growing in the Arctic? Yeah, I think the biggest challenges have been like political, just getting people to like, there's really no laws for growing here on Svalbard. There was agriculture up until like the 90s, because you have to understand Svalbard is kind of an international place. So there was the main ones active now are the Russians and the Norwegians. And there's a small Polish station. So it's kind of like a it's kind of like a space station on Earth. Everybody has their little areas and then they kind of, you know, everyone has to answer to Norway in the end because they have the sovereignty. There's no rules here. There were no rules for agriculture. So they stopped in the 90s. The Russians were producing a lot of their own food during the Soviet Union times. And then after that collapsed, then they stopped sending a lot of resources here. And there was like everything, everyone just imported it. And then when I started, I mean, there have been people who have been trying, been growing things here, but it was always like on a private level and no one was really trying to do it on a commercial level. And like also our laws have been very weird because this was set up as a company town. So it was kind of like the company made all of the rules and they didn't want people coming here who are supposed to be working and and becoming like business people. So for example, our fish for a long time, our fish was only for private use. So that meant our fish had to be caught, sent somewhere, processed, and then we had to buy our fresh fish back frozen. We weren't allowed to sell the frozen fish. And we have some reindeers here, but it's not much. So pretty much everything that you eat here is from somewhere else. So this is like one of the most challenging places to be because it's so much pressure to have everything imported. Like there's nothing basically from here. So it's been really challenging to get the, you know, permissions for things. Like I wanted worms, uh, composting worms so that I can compost. It took one and a half years just to get permission to have worms so that I could Mm -hmm. compost. I hadn't appreciated sort of the economic challenges from being in a being so far away in a, in a, a smaller town. What about in terms of the climate? So, you know, the lack of sun, sunshine and the temperature. What are the challenges there that you've had to overcome? Well, to grow indoors, is not so bad because most of we have uh, we produce energy from coal at this point. So mm-hmm. we have hot water and they use this district heating to warm the houses. So the houses are very warm. It's just to set up some lights, but to grow outside has been quite a challenge. So we can only do that in the summer because I want to use as much natural light as possible. I mean, it's very easy just to set up and just run lights, you know, 18 hours a day for the whole year. But I really want to try to use as much sun as possible and try to you know, work with the nature here as much as possible. So that's been quite challenging. I mean, the easiest way would have been just to set up a grow room, just produce as many salads as possible, take the money and just, you know, take it to the bank. But I don't think that would really help the town in the end. So we would still be shipping everything up Mm -hmm. and all of the organic waste and the sewage here, we dump into the sea. So it's like a lot of nutrients are just wasted. They go into the sea and then you don't get them really back. So We've been trying to think of a smarter way where we can kind of close this uh, nutrient cycle where we, of course, we have to import things. But, you know, we try to do as much as we can here. And that's just pretty much how we've been trying to operate. And what about you, Angela? I mean, I mean, you obviously don't even have that that aspect of nature, really, if if you're designing food for astronauts. So, I mean, what what makes it particularly difficult for astronauts in terms of the food that they eat? Yeah, well, there, there's actually two components uh, to this answer. First of all, the actual plant and the properties of the crops. And then secondly, the specifics of the space environment. If you want to develop a space crop that is really ideal to grow in space, it needs to, 
have a multitude of properties. And it, first of all, it needs to have a high nutritious value, of course. You need to be able to cultivate it in a very compact way, low resource needs, low maintenance. It needs to grow as fast as possible and it needs a high harvest index. That's like the ideal crop, of course. It's like basically the ideal crop on earth, but on steroids. You know, it's like really just trying to maximize every single thing in that plant. And that is still under, under full development. So you have to know, like, and, and you have to realize, like in the International Space Station, every single square centimeter is expensive. So you really want a high yield in a very small volume. So that's one challenge. On the other hand, when we're in space, in the International Space Station, there's microgravity, hardly any gravity. And even on Mars and the Moon, there is reduced gravity. So developing agriculture in those micro or low gravity environments is also still a bit of a challenge. There's, of course, also the, the element of radiation in space. But that's something that can actually be solved architecturally. You can actually build a grow room, for example, underground on Mars or on the Moon and cover it with regolith to protect it from radiation. So that's actually the least of the problems. It's mostly about finding those crops that are ideal for space and then secondly, uh, dealing with those specific conditions of, uh, of, of, of micro and low gravity. Okay, so natural follow-up question then. So what, what are those ideal crops and, and what is it that... Uh that ask the food that astronauts are actually are eating now or going to be eating? Research right now is mostly focused on traditional crops. Uh, we're, we're talking about wheat, potatoes, soybeans, spinach, uh, even algae. Mm. So at this point, we're still at a stage where a lot of fundamental research is being done. We're not yet at the stage where we can, like I said, where we can produce large quantities of food that astronauts can rely on because we're still trying to understand this whole challenge and the solutions for space farming. And right now what we have on board of the International Space Station are actually really well-developed meals. They're basically ready meals. It's, you add hot water and the meal is ready. And what astronauts prefer to eat is actually comfort food. One of the favorite uh, food items in the International Space Station, for example, are tortilla breads um, <laughs> because it's it's quick, it doesn't crumble. So it's bread is really a problem in a in a, in a space station, but a tortilla is uh, bread is, is really handy. And the main thing is, and this is really key, is you can customize it. If you have a ready meal in a bag, in a vacuum bag, and you add some water, all the ingredients are there and you can't really customize it. But with a tortilla bread, you can actually add a few things, you can leave out a few things and you can customize it. And this is really key because there is a problem. If you have to, re to eat, ready meals every single day, you do get sick and tired of those meals after some time. Oh, it's called imagine, yeah. menu, menu fatigue. And this could tackle this by allowing astronauts to cook their own meals. And I guess the same question to you, but I know you touched on a little bit of the difficulties of growing in the Arctic, but in terms of your setup, what makes it difficult to grow within the setup that you have right now in the Arctic? I think pretty much you can grow just about anything if you have the right conditions. But for us, we found that it's... Um, from the feasibility study that it's most profitable for us to focus on leafy greens, herbs, and microgreens. And we calculated the market, and then we would eventually like to expand into potatoes, tomatoes, cucumbers, uh, mushrooms would be nice to do, but um, you just can't do everything at one time. So for now, we focus on the things that we can sell the, uh, for the highest value. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested uh, in hearing a bit more about you know, the, the technology that you're using, well, both of you are using, in fact, you know, so what, what are the, some of the best innovations 
helping to grow the food in the extremes that you're both working in right now. So, you know, Benjamin, you've got some sort of vertical farming. Uh, you know, what what are the technologies that? And and for our listeners, what what does that actually look like? So, if you go if you go to your town and you ha- you go to your setup, what what does it look like to people? So we're just in the process of changing our setup. So our previous setup was that we had one place that's maybe around. 10 to 15 square meters, we call it the lab. And that's because we've done a lot of our experimenting there and it's everything started there. And inside of there, we had shelves and we had like LED lights going across the shelves and we were growing different types of microgreens and salads and different things like that. We would have some fans to make the circulation and we didn't have any like automated watering. We were doing it, we did it by hand. Mm-hmm. And then we had another location, which was like a small shipping container. We called it the barrack. And inside of there, it's full of basil. So we used shelves and we used LED lights. We used fans. And then now what we did is we got a new location, which is like a, it's a three-bedroom house, actually. And <laughs> the house, the problem is here now because there was an avalanche zone. So a lot of houses are being torn down. And uh, there's like two or three houses that the government owned that they're not going to tear down now because it's on the other side of the house. So they're letting us use this three bedroom house. So we're going to combine the two locations into one. And then we want to have one room that we use like it's a bigger room, maybe about 20 square meters. And we want to focus more on hydroponics and we want to grow. We're working with two companies. So we want to have those two companies to provide systems that we will use to see which one we like. And then our next step is that we're going to get a 300 square meter setup sometime next year. And we want to have all of this experience to carry to the new location. And then we will just focus on whichever machine worked the best now, if that makes sense. Amazing. That yeah, really so, is truly uh, growing yeah. food in the extremes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all indoors. And then we have an outside dome greenhouse, which is like, 100 square meters, and we use that normally from May until September. So everything starts indoors, and then we move it outside around May, and then we have 24 hours of sun here, basically, until end of September. So the plants just grow from the sunlight. We don't use any energy there. It's just a passive passive solar setup outside there. Now everything is moving to, we want to scale up and become more of a, a larger setup. And what type of technology are you looking to sort of expand on the hydroponics or? Yeah, we really like the hydroponics, but we also grow in soil. We like the soil as well. We, we just probably will have both because in the outside greenhouse, we don't want to put hydroponics because then you have to have electricity, you have to have pumps, you have to use a lot of different things. So I think we will use both soil and hydroponics. Okay, wonderful. And and Angelo, is that similar to what you're, you're doing for, for space? I mean, is that what they're using now? Is it like hydroponics? those sorts of things, or is that additional space tech which you're using to grow food? So the the Melissa system, right now there's actually a pilot plant, which is a combination of the five compartments of the Melissa system. One of the compartments of the Melissa system are actually the humans. They're considered one compartment. Right now, they're being simulated by a bunch of rats, lab rats. 60 lab rats represent one human. That's kind of how they're using it Mm -hmm. now. And so all the output of those humans is going to three different types of bioreactors. And a bioreactor is basically a sort of glass vessel with a liquid that is with a lot of microorganisms. And it's bubbling and it's processing. 
and then particular chemicals come out of that and go to the next bioreactor. So it looks very much like a laboratory. It doesn't really look like an ecosystem as we envision it. It's not like you have all kinds of beautiful trees and flowers. It's really a lab setting. And then at the end, all the CO2 and all the nitrates that have been produced through these processes are being fed to a growth chamber. And that's basically the kind of technology that Benjamin was talking about. It's a, a closed growth chamber with hydroponics, with LED lighting, a series of traditional crops that is being grown there. But interestingly, in the Melissa system, we're also growing algae, single-celled algae, spirulina. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that algae are actually, of course, they, they contain a lot of proteins. I think that's well known. But the advantage of algae is that they're really nutrient rich. They, and they're, I mean, the advantage is that you can grow them in a very compact space. If you compare it to, for example, a potato plant with all the leaves coming out, well, that needs a lot of space. But algae are really very compact and they provide a good uh, source of nutrients. The thing is, you can't feed astronauts just on algae. I mean, that, that <laughs> yeah, is just I think probably get pretty a, a, horrible, a horrible diet. As you, you can imagine it as a kind of long vertical towers full of green bubbling liquid surrounded by LED lights illuminating the, the algae and that produces part of the food. So that's how the system really looks like. Wow, amazing. I'd love to see that someday. That sounds incredible. I'm picturing a lava lamp right now. <laughs> <laughs> an algae lava yeah. lamp yeah an, an, an algae lamp one of the things i was thinking of while you're speaking is i feel like a lot of the lessons learned from growing food in extreme locations it might sound quite niche and specialized but to me it sounds like a lot of this could really apply to the real world so you know from from you what do you think are some learnings that you know current agricultural farmers can learn and use in their everyday farming practices yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a bit like what I said before, right? Um, embracing that circular thinking and looking at those technologies that have been developed for space about closing the loop, uh, sensor technology, climate control technology, automation, robotics, all those things are, are, are really well advanced in, in the field of space exploration and could be, could be useful, I think, for farmers on Earth, especially in terms of uh, big data and AI. Maybe, maybe that's a topic that's going to come up later during the conversation. Yeah, we were going to ask about that. I mean, you know, obviously big data and AI is, you know, it seems to be one of these things that uh, is on everybody's lips, particularly when it comes to farming. But uh, I mean, we work with a number of partners who are looking into this, but it's certainly something which hasn't taken off in any big way. So I'm just wondering, do you both think that that's something which is going to really start happening very soon? And is there something that that you, you're both been learning about that, which can be applied to like more modern farming techniques? There is a lot going on for sure. And I, I think there, there are a few things in which big data and uh, AI and robotics are all converging and are, are having and will be having are already having a huge impact on the future of agriculture. One of the really hot topics right now in the agricultural industry is plant modeling. Basically, the idea is that we um, are really, really at a stage, a technological stage, in which we can start to figure out plant growth recipes. There's something called light recipes for plants, which means that by applying specific types of LED lights with specific properties of frequencies and colors and intensities, you can actually modulate the growth of the plant and you can actually shape the morphology of the plant, but also how much fruits or vegetable or, or, or how much 
produce it actually uh, generates. So these are light recipes, but you can actually extend it to more general recipes, like what kind, what is the influence of all these environmental factors on the productivity and the growth of a plant, of temperature, ventilation, substrate, nutrients, microbiology, you can investigate each single one of them, but of course it's also interesting to investigate all possible combinations of these for all kinds of crop varieties. You can mm. you already sense it, right? This becomes hugely complex. This is not like having a plant and then just following up the growth in a few temperature ranges. This is a really complex issue. And for that, we need a lot of processing power. We need AI, we need a lot of data and then put them together in plant models so we can actually understand the growth of a plant and more importantly, we can predict the growth of a plant. So we can predict, we can precisely predict the productivity of a plant and we can intervene when it's needed. So plant modeling is really big on the research agenda of a lot of companies right now. And that's where big data comes in because you need to get as much information as possible. Another one that is really interesting is we're starting to, um, to understand this, we're only at the beginning of this to understand the relation between the composition of DNA and actual specific plant characteristics. It's not like scientists, they know they can just read a chunk of DNA of a plant and they can just immediately pinpoint like, oh, that's how sweet the plant will be and that's how, how long it will be. It doesn't exist. But of course, there is a relationship between those two. And for that, once again, you need a lot of data, you need a lot of uh, computing power and possibly AI to figure out that relationship between DNA and plant characteristics. And then when we move into the more into the hardware and talking about sensors and robotics, there's a few interesting things that are actually happening at my university, Delft University of Technology. One of the projects that my university is uh, coordinating is called Plantana. And it's actually to create a cyber plant. The goal of the project is really to build a sensor inside the plant. And so you can really the plant can continuously send data about its own state and also about the environment around itself. So suddenly you really have an understanding of the plant itself and you can modify uh, the conditions uh, of the plant to make sure it grows optimally. This is actually a quite interesting project, uh, which is done by the four technical universities of the Netherlands, all working together on this. And then the last quite, my, one of my favorite examples, once again, of my university uh, is um, in the field of robotics, it's called Delphi. And this is a really small robot. It's a lightweight robot that is built as if uh, based on insect movement. It has two wings. It only weighs two, 29 grams. It's like a really very lightweight uh, robot. And it, it, it beats its wings like 17 times per second or something. And you could, right. really, you could really imagine a swarm of these robots investigating crops within greenhouses to check for pests and other things you want to know about the plants. And once again, there is a lot of technology and, and computing uh, technology, of course, involved in coordinating all this. Wow. Okay, Angela, you've just <laughs> blown my mind. <laughs> I know, it's really, it's really impressive and it's really great to hear about all this technology. And for me, the question is like, how does this become reality? Like, you know, do you, do you think that the use of this technology is going to make extreme or unusual locations capable of becoming farmland so that we can sustainably feed more people and for this to happen what needs to be in place because i'm also thinking it sounds a bit sci-fi to me right now like how do we make this reality and how do we make it affordable so it can be widely adopted like for you benjamin for example bringing in the technology of hydroponics and aeroponics you know that comes at a, a cost like how have you been been able to make that a reality where you are 
for us, we've been able to, we've, we've made good connections with people and we've had a lot of support. So for us, it's been very important to reach out and connect and to work with different people. So that's how we've been able to, to get to where we needed to be. And what about you, Angelo, all the technology that you've spoke about, like what needs to be in place to make that a reality? It's a gradual process, right? For example, over the past decade, a lot of advancement has been made in hydroponics. Hydroponics is actually a really old technology. It dates from like, you know, the first examples are like 600 BC. The hanging gardens of Babylon were hydroponics. So it's, it's nothing new, but it's like the last few decades, actually, a lot of insight has been gained in how to modulate the growth environment within a greenhouse of the hydroponics environment to grow the specific plant that you want with the specific productivity that you want. There's already a lot of knowledge there, but we're usually talking about one single crop in one one specific greenhouse and the knowledge doesn't extend much further, but the knowledge is there. And that knowledge, which is pretty sophisticated, is actually ready to be exported. It's not like, you know, it's the only thing is it's costly. Mm, Um, these, These greenhouses for especially for the global south, uh, some of these technologies, even though they're relatively simple, you know, hydroponics is not all super high tech. You can have a basic hydroponic system that works well without, you know, that is, it's still relatively costly in comparison to traditional farming. So the costs still need to go down. And then when we're talking about these more science fiction-like solutions that I was talking about, like Plantana and then the, the small swarm robots, well, that's in an early stage and gradually over time, this will become a new normal. We're not there yet. But so depending on which aspect of contemporary uh, agriculture you're looking at, it's ready to be exported or, you know, or it's still in a, in a development stage. Now, I want to stress, and this is something that I definitely want to stress within this, within, this, within this conversation, is we also need to go back to local and traditional knowledge. Not mm. everything can be solved using just focusing on technology. It would be a mistake to do that. And it's not just traditional, how to put it, uh, regular agricultural knowledge. There might also be local knowledge that is very specifically geared towards sustainability because generations of people that have lived there before had to deal with a lack of uh, resources without all the technology. So before we kind of jump into this technology positive future where everything is solved by technology, let's not forget the past and let's make a, a, an interesting balance between the two. Totally agree. And and I think actually I see Benjamin nodding his head away while you're talking there, Angela. I mean, do you look to, to local knowledge in terms of what you're doing, Benjamin? Is this something that you're relying on? Yeah, definitely, because um, we're not the only ones growing here. I mean, everyone here is growing usually in their houses or just for fun, but we're the ones trying to do it more on a commercial level. So I don't claim to be the first or the one or the only, but we all just kind of work together and share knowledge. And it's, it's very important. I mean, it's, it's the only way you can, you know, all get through it is by sharing and learning from each other. You know, we are in a situation now due to technology and productivity, we've had a result in over farming and overuse of our land. So to both of you, so how do we make sure that the techniques and technology that you're both using to grow food in the Arctic and grow food in the space, that it doesn't eventually end up doing any harm to the areas that you're growing food locally. So Benjamin, what what considerations do you take into account? Well, for us, it's really tough to, we, we don't grow in the ground. Everything is kind of in a controlled environment and we don't grow in, in the permafrost here. I know in Alaska and some other places, they actually grow in the permafrost, but 
we don't do it here. And um, yeah, that's kind of how we, it's all in a controlled environment. And I guess what you've sort of mentioned about, like you you make sure it's a, it's a circular system. So whatever, whatever waste and stuff you're producing, it's almost built back into your food production. As much as possible. I mean, we, we don't, we're not 100% efficient with it, but we work as much as possible to, to make it as circular as possible. So that's what we've been trying to do. What about you, Angelo? What are some things that you need to consider when you're thinking about growing food in space? In terms of sustainability, well, that's basically exactly the same thing as, as, as what Benjamin just said, this quest to make things fully circular. Like I said, it's, it's been a part of the Melissa program since it started 30 years ago. It's nothing new. And of course, one of the advantages of growing plants inside growth chambers is that the chances for pests is much lower than if you're, if you're growing outside. And so this, uh, this avoids the use of pesticides, which of course in space, you wouldn't want to dump toxic pesticides outside of your space station, of course. Absolutely not. Yeah. So, and guys, I mean, we're, we're very nearly out of time, actually. But I mean, Angelo, I was wondering, do you think we'll ever get to a place where we could farm at like a commercial level in space? You know, I, you sort of touched on the ability to scale these things up and that that's been proven to, to be possible. So do you think that will happen? And what do you think will be needed to make that happen? This is a deep question. This is really a question about the future of humankind in space. And yes, in, in a long term there will be extensive farming in space and there will be an economy around farming in space, just like it is here on Earth. I'm sure about this. But is this going to happen anytime soon? No. So we're still far away from an actually full-blown economy in space where farming is, is one of the elements. But it's inevitable. It's going to happen anyhow. But it might take another two, three hundred years before we get there. Okay, so from space back down to Earth, Benjamin, what, what would you need where you're based to kind of scale up what you're doing to get to a level where I think you're trying to make you're trying to make your town completely self-sufficient. So what what is it that you need to make that happen? Yeah, I don't think I can make the town completely self-sufficient. That's no. that's okay. very difficult. We have, maybe I mentioned it before, but after we've done the feasibility study, like there's a lot of things that we, we, we just can't do. So we calculated the market and we figured that we want to, we have goals that we want to reach each year. So for example, 2021, we want to be at, I think it was 16% of the market production of vegetables. I mean, we just, we have to run it like a, it's like a business. We have to run it like a business, but we also want to be conscious and we want to be, you know, as sustainable and as smart as possible with how we do it. The biggest challenge has been working with all the different parties, the polit politicians, mm. the, the businesses here, the the people. It's just been trying to put all of that together. And it's um I didn't expect that. I didn't expect I was signing up for that. So the the growing part is the easiest part, but that's not the main part. The main part is dealing with people and you know getting people to to agree and to do things. So yeah, it's been a it's been a big challenge. But now everybody wants it. And um you know before I have to say that Longyearbyen was one of the places that had the highest CO2 footprint per capita in the world because we wow, really? import everything. Not only do we import everything, but we ship all of the waste back to Norway and it's processed there. We would dump the organic waste and sewage into the sea, which they say is not so bad because we have a good circulation. We also burn coal and we import diesel because we can't produce enough energy from coal. So our footprint is very, very high. 
And no one really cared for a long time because this was a coal town and it was a core business. But now things have changed. And because we have been pushing and doing what we've been doing, the whole town has decided that they now want to become a circular city. And they want to focus on the three areas, energy production, food production, and waste management. And this is because of what we have been pushing for all of these years. Now the whole city, the government, everybody is on board with it. So I have to say that's a, a huge accomplishment. And from there, we just have to see where it goes. Oh, yeah. well huge yeah, congratulations. That's, that's yeah. amazing. And would you say that's the thing that you're now most excited about, that, that you know it's given you the most sort of energy to keep going? Yes, I would say so. Because before it was like I was saying all of these things and it was like I was speaking another language and people just didn't understand. And now it's kind of like, finally to be understood like people understand what i've been saying all this time and now they all want it so it's took like taking a huge burden off of me well done oh big congrats big congrats and angelo what about you what are you what are you most excited about going forwards so for me it's it's really most interesting to to bridge both worlds and to bring them together and then secondly it's this this whole circle this whole idea of closing the loop Mm and creating a circle greenhouse, which is high on the agenda now in countries like in the Netherlands, is, uh, is a very interesting prospect. And there's all kinds of ways, and there's not gonna be one single solution to do this. There's all kinds of ways to, to accomplish this. I'm very much looking forward to the future of such a concept as the circle greenhouse. Fantastic. Brilliant. And I guess it feels like you're both very hopeful for the future. If you can both send a message to the food industry, so what would you really urge them to adopt based on your experiences? You know, I think it's kind of it's kind of hard to say because I think it it's not just the food industry, it's the consumers, it's the one who are who are paying. So it's like like was it the chicken or the egg mm. that came first? <laughs> we have to kind of like agree that I mean it's like more difficult now to and more expensive to buy organic produce than it is to buy conventional produce. When you're organic, you have to pay for certification. So like, like we need to find a way that makes sense where, you know, where people want to buy it and people want to produce it. And we just need to work together. We need to, we need to figure out some way to do this where we don't deplete all of the resources and we don't, you know, use up so many of the things that we have now. And it can be done much smarter. And I think we need to really move away from this, uh, you know, linear economy. I think we need to figure out a way to repair and to, you know, reuse things and not just buy, throw and buy again. I seem to be getting the loud message left from both of you that you're very big into the circular economy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, of course. Brilliant. And I was just just going to ask, guys, I've been meaning to ask this as we've gone through the whole recording. Given what you now know about each other and what you do, which is the most difficult place to grow food? Is it space? Is it the Arctic? Is it is it the oceans? Is it the desert? You know what? If there was like a fight between most difficult place to grow, what's what's the hardest? Space is. Uh, I'm afraid. Space, is more <laughs> okay. than, uh, space wins. I, I don't, I, um, I, yeah, I think it's pretty obvious. Yeah, I mean, you, you're operating in, in in vacuum or near vacuum. The temperature ranges are insane. You have radiation, microgravity. I mean, this is yeah, this is a whole different thing than anywhere on Earth. But um, if I also want to answer the question about what I would say to the to mm, the food industry, because I haven't been, I haven't answered that, is that. I must say I've seen a lot of really positive developments in the food industry uh, recently, especially the embrace of circular economy. It is, it, is, it is being embraced more and more by food industry. 
and also something like the protein transition, which I think is a really good thing, that we're transitioning proteins away from animal sources to all kinds of other sources, like bacterial or vegetable uh, sources, of course. But one of the things that I think we still need to, uh, to work hard on is the whole uh, issue of pesticides. I think that's just still a big issue. Some of the schemes that are being developed using uh, genetic modification in order to create plants that you can even you can uh, you can apply even more pesticides. I mean, these kind of schemes are not really the future, I think. So I think our whole idea on how to deal with pests needs to be tackled much more from a biological perspective using biological control and less from a strictly chemical perspective. I think that that would definitely be something that I would advise the industry to have a deeper look yeah. at. On that note, yeah, no, thanks very much. That's a, that's a really inspiring way to sort of end the podcast today. So it's been so great talking to you both. But before we close, it'll be good for our listeners to find out a little bit about where they can find out more about your work. So, Benjamin? Yeah, you can just Google polar permaculture or you can visit us at our website, polarpermaculture.com. Or you can just Google Benjamin Vidmar. It all comes up and everything is there. There's a lot of documentaries. There's a lot of uh, articles and many people have uh, reported on what we're doing. So we look forward to meeting all of you soon. And thank you. Brilliant. What about you, Angelo? Where can people find out more about your work? Simply go to our website, which is seeds.network. It's S-E-A-D-S dot network. And there you find basically our portfolio of different kinds of projects and also my personal profile. Brilliant. Thank you, both. Amazing. Guys, thank you so very much for being on the show. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you get up to in the future. This has been the Food Fight podcast. As ever, if you'd like to find out more, head over to the EIT Food website at www.eitfood.eu or hit us up on Twitter at EIT Food. But that's it for now. We'll see you in a week's time. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much. Thanks very much.